0: Father in heaven, uh, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you would be with us. Uh, It's true that our fingers are nimble enough to open its pages, but we pray that you would work on our minds and hearts to enable us to really receive what is here. God, there's so much that can come to distract us uh, from the scripture, but we pray that we would hear it, it would embed deep within us, change us, um, and ready us uh, to receive from the table this morning that's set before us. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to turn to Hebrews and chapter 13. Uh, I just want to read one verse. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, please. <clears throat> Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 17. Hear the word of God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now notice that this particular passage, particular verse, gives a command and then an incentive for us to obey that command. This particular passage gives us a command and then an incentive uh, to obey it. The command is that we're to obey our leaders and to submit to them, and we're to obey our leaders and submit to them in such a way that leading us is a joy to them. Right? You'd expect them to say, Obey your leaders and things will go well for you. It will be a joy for you. But what he's saying, the command is, Obey and submit to your leaders in such a way that it's a joy for them to lead you. And then the incentive that he gives us is this. That if we don't do that, he says it negatively, if we don't do that, if we don't obey and submit to our leaders in such a way that it's a joy for them to lead us, then there will be no advantage to us in having them as leaders. Implied in that is if we do obey and submit to them in such a way that leading us is a joy to them, then there will be great benefit for us in having them as our leaders. So significant is is this, is that John Calvin, uh, whom a theologian of some note uh, from previous generations, put it like this. He says, hence the author of Hebrews declares that it would be unprofitable for the people to cause sorrow and mourning to their leaders by their ingratitude. And he declared this, that he might intimate to us that we cannot be troublesome or disobedient to our leaders without hazarding our own salvation. Very solemn expression. But our dear brother Calvin. Let me read that again. He says, Hence, the author of Hebrews declares that it would be unprofitable to the people to cause sorrow and mourning to their leaders by their ingratitude. And he declared this, that he might intimate to us that we cannot be troublesome or disobedient to our leaders without hazarding our own salvation. He says, Having these as leaders that God has given to us is of such great importance that if we don't obey and submit to them in such a way that it's a joy for them to lead us, then it's hazarding Our own salvation. And he goes on to say, if we don't do this, then it really shoots ourselves in the foot. He puts it like this. He says, let us remember that we're suffering the punishment of our perverseness whenever leaders grow cold in their duty or are less diligent than they ought to be. He says, very often, if we don't obey our leaders properly and so forth, and it's a joy for them to lead us, then what we find is that they'll grow cold in their duty... And they'll be less diligent in helping us than they ought to be. And so he he puts it that solemnly, that significantly. And the author of Hebrews obviously thinks this is of some importance because he raises it right at the very end of his message to make certain uh, that he doesn't uh, miss it. Now, it may seem to you that this is a rather self-serving passage for me to to preach from. Um, But but. Let me just suggest to you that it isn't for a number of reasons. Number one, you know, if you've been with us, you know exactly why I'm preaching from this passage today. Because if my method of counting uh, serves me, I realize that verse verse 17 follows verse 16. Right? And we stopped with verse 16 the last time, so I assume that we take up verse 17. This wasn't my idea to take up verse 17. That was the author of Hebrews' idea... I suspect, God's idea for me to take up verse 17. So this isn't my reasoning, this isn't my agenda, isn't my purpose today to take this up. It's just simply here so we take up uh, the very next point. Uh, but also to realize that, that that even in my capacity as pastor of the church, I'm not the sole leader nor the primary leader of our church. Obviously, Christ is the head of the church, And I serve with a team of leaders. In our context, we have elders and others who lead in the life of our church. And so I'm simply one among many. And so so this isn't really about submitting and obeying me particularly. This really is something that we all must attend to, myself included. Because given our particular way of doing church, I have leaders over me to whom I must submit. In fact, when I became a pastor, I made a vow... And the vow in something like this, in sort of Presbyterian speak, it said that I would, I was vowing to submit to my fellow presbyters in the Lord, which means that I'm submitting to really all of the other elders, not only in our church, but in our whole denomination. That I'm willing to submit to them. I place myself in submission. And so I need to live my life... Just like others need to live their lives, I need to live my life in such a way that those who lead me, that those whom God has given a stewardship over my soul, they watch over my soul, that their watching of my soul will be a joy and a delight to them and not to grieve them. So I sit under this passage just in the same way uh, that you do. So it applies to me... As well, and also, I must say to you that to, to the degree that I am a leader in this church, I have no particular axe to grind because I'm a very happy leader. You have made me, you've made my life to be a joy. I've been here 17 years nearly, and uh, and and I stay in a good measure because I just like it here. <laughs> I was just with a bunch of pastors at our General Assembly meeting, one of whom expressed his ministry like this. He said to me, he said, You know, Bill, sometimes I feel like the lone tree in a world full of dogs. He was looking for a job, right? Because this was not a happy place for him. He was not in a place where leading was a joy. He was not in a place... With the people that he was in ministry with and to uh, were easy to manage. And so he was finding his life very, very discouraging. And I have to admit, I don't relate to that at all. And so I have no particular axe to grind. I use you all as an example all the time when I talk to pastors, when I give seminars, when I, when I teach about... Being a pastor and all that, and, and, and what it's like to be in a congregation of people who are firm and who are nice and reasonable and all that. So I don't have... You know me, and you know this. This is not fluff. I'm not giving you pastoral hype here. This is just true. If I didn't like you, I'd leave. Uh, trust me. And so... <laughs> I'm basically a coward. And so so I'm just telling you that I don't have a, you know this, I don't have a particular axe to grind. I've liked being here all the years that I've been here and trust I'll continue to stay till I retire or die. And so, uh, uh, but I think the author of Hebrews has an agenda here. And his agenda here is the same as it's been since the very first chapter in the first verse. And his agenda is to enable us to persevere in the faith. That's what he's after. Because you see, that's it. Remember, Jesus said that, that no man puts his, who puts his hand to the plow should ever look back. He says, he who perseveres to the end will be, will be saved because being a Christian isn't something that's just in a segment of our life or, or, or a portion of time in our lives. It's not a childhood thing. It, it, it's not an old age thing. It's not a crisis thing. It's not a thing that we, we take up for a moment and leave. It defines our whole lives being followers of Christ. We're to be Christ-oriented, Christ-centered, Christ-dependent, Christ-worshipping, Christ-serving people from the moment we profess faith in Him until we die throughout all of eternity. That's the way it's to be. We're to persevere to the end. And so the author of Hebrews looks around at this group of people and he says to them, I want you to hold fast until the end. How does he put it? For instance, in in chapter 3, he puts it like this, verse 6, But Christ is faithful over his house and the Son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. He says, we need to continue on in this. Verse 14, he puts it like this. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He wants them, he wants us, to continue to persevere in the faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. So we have to believe that this particular verse, as in all the other passages in Hebrews, is about that. He's saying that what you need in the context of your life are God-given, God-called, God-ordained leaders who can watch over your souls. Because in enabling us to persevere, in motivating us to persevere, in helping us to persevere, he's telling us a number of things. First, his overarching theme is that we're to consider Jesus. You remember in chapter 3, in verse 1, he puts it like this, Therefore, Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him and appointed, and appoint, who appointed him just as Moses was also faithful in all God's household. We know that this whole message is about Jesus. And he's saying, if you're going to persevere, you have to think about him. You have to consider him. And so even in chapter 12, this theme rings. He says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, that is Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. He's saying, listen, if you're going to persevere to the end, what you need to do is constantly be thinking about, constantly be meditating upon, constantly be considering Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he's doing, his very presence with you, your need for him, all of that. You need to have that on your mind all the time. And the way that we do that, of course, is to pay attention to what we've heard about him. Uh, In chapter 2, he's put it like this. He says, therefore, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect Such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He's saying, listen, what helps you to consider Jesus is to listen to what you've been told about him. And he said, what helps you consider Jesus also is the encouragement that you receive from each other. For instance, um, in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. He's saying, listen, you need to encourage each other all the time about these things. So, if you're going to persevere in the faith, you need to consider Jesus, which means you must listen to what you've heard about him and pay real attention to it. And the way that you do that is is, is by listening to each other, as you encourage each other about the things of Christ, about the things of God. So, listen about those things. But now he says, "This I've given you leaders as well, and these leaders are to watch over your souls." They watch over your souls as those who give an account to God. God has placed them there. They're responsible to Him for your souls. And I've placed them there in such a way that it will be beneficial to you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to obey and submit to them. And I want you to obey and submit to them in such a way that they're leading you as a joy. And if you do that, implied is the promise that it will go well with you that, that, that it will be of great advantage to you and for you. Now that God has given us leaders shouldn't be any great surprise to us. I mean, you read the Bible. I mean, you, there are leaders scattered throughout. Moses, Joshua, the various judges. There's a great expression in, in, in the Old Testament, the elders of Israel. You might remember that Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law, came to Moses one day because Moses was just overworked and overbooked. He kept receiving all these grievances from all of these people. And so his father-in-law came to him and says, Moses, if you keep living like this, you're going to die. You can't govern the people like this. You can't watch over the people like this. What you need is to get various elders from each tribe, the, the wise ones, and commission them to handle all the dealings with the people. Now, if there's something they can't deal with, then they'll bring that to you. But, but delegate this to the wise ones, the elders of Israel. And so we read throughout the Old Testament, elders of Israel with this and with this and with this and with this. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we come to the New Testament, that when Paul plants churches, the book of Acts tells us that he appoints elders in every church that is, leaders in every church, wise ones in every church. And it's the job of those elders to oversee the life and the ministry of, of that particular church that Paul had planted. And so when Paul writes to Timothy and he writes to Titus, Titus who were basically church planters in the early church, he, he tells them about what elders are to be. and and, and the character that they're to have. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read about the lives of these leaders. In Titus in chapter 1, we read about the character and the lives of these leaders. In in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter talks about the task of these leaders. For instance, uh, he puts it like this, verse 1, So I exhort, exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so he's saying, listen, there's a chief chief shepherd. We read about him in our call to worship. He called himself the good shepherd. The author of Hebrews calls him the great shepherd of the sheep, uh, Jesus. And under him, appointed under him, are those who are to look after his flock. These elders, these overseers, these ones who are to care for the souls of the ones Jesus bought. When Paul met with a group of elders from Ephesus, uh, he put it like this. This is in Acts chapter 20. He says to them, Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so again, the significance of this in the context of those who are called to lead or called to shepherd, called to be elders, called to be overseers in the life of the church is that the very ones whom they care for are most... Precious to Jesus. He's saying, those particular ones are ones I bought with my blood. So you're accountable to me, he says to these leaders, to look after them, to care for their souls. I'm making you a steward over their souls. And then a day will come when you will report back to me about that. And so he's saying, submit, obey these particular ones. Not only that, we read in Ephesians, this is all background, by the way, till we get to it, Ephesians, in chapter 4, that God has, in fact, given these leaders as gifts to the church. Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 7, it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, And gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended to the lower parts of the earth? Who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. That's only to say that Jesus came as the incarnate Son of God, died for our sins, went to heaven. When he did, he gave us gifts. And here's a list of those gifts, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is with, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is that Jesus has given to his church gifts. And these gifts are, are various offices, leaders in the life of the church. And they're given to the church to help the church grow up so that the church can be mature, so that the church won't drift away. And so these gifts are given for our benefit. And so again, it shouldn't surprise us that the word to us is listen to them, obey them, submit to them, even in such a way that their work is a joy. Because no one is equal to this task. It would be a great burden If someone were called to lead in the church and those who are to be led wouldn't realize the great burden that it is and willingly, joyfully, kindly, patiently, peacefully, nicely, reasonably obey and submit because no one is equal to this task. Again, the apostle then tells us to do just this. So the questions are these. Number one. What is entailed in obeying and submitting? And number two, why is this obeying and submitting to be done in such a way that it brings joy to those who are the leaders? Right? Two questions. One, what's entailed in this obeying and submitting? Two, why is it to be done in such a way that is, why are we to obey and submit in such a way that it's a joyful task to those who are called to lead. Now, what's meant then by this obeying and submitting? Obviously, it isn't an absolute obedience nor a blind submission. Obviously, it isn't an absolute submission nor uh, absolute obedience nor a blind submission. Anytime in Scripture, when one person is called to obey or submit to another, it's never absolute. It's always in the context that we're to have no other gods before us. It's always in the context that God is our God. And if any time someone to whom we're called to submit requires of us to do that which is clearly disobedient to God, then we ought not do it. We see this throughout the scripture. We see it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't bow down to the golden idol. We see it with Daniel when he was told not to pray. He continued to pray. We see it with the early apostles when they were told not to preach in the name of Jesus. They continued to preach in the name of Jesus saying, we must obey God rather than men. And it's those same apostles that said that were to submit to every human institution. And yet they wouldn't submit when submitting would clearly mean that they would be disobedient to God. So even in this context, perhaps even most especially in this context, there isn't absolute obedience nor blind submission. In fact, even in the words that's used, and you can't do this, and I'm not going to try to impress you with my knowledge of Greek, but even in the words that are used here, uh, uh, the author of Hebrews had a number of words he could have used for obedience and submission he chose what linguistically are very soft words for obedience and submission for this little word obedience is often translated in other places as be persuaded by or trust that is that is that that, that you know that these leaders have been called by god so give them the benefit of the doubt uh, you've seen the lives of these leaders So, given the difficulty of their task, have an inclination or a disposition to joyfully go along with them in these things. We're to submit to them, uh, speaking in a sense to our attitude. We're to to live with an, an attitude of yieldedness to them. And we realize, of course, that this cuts across our pride. I mean, Moses ran into trouble leading the people. And one of the reasons he ran into trouble leading the people is they would come to him and said, you're just like us. Who appointed you to be leader over us? And then God would do little things like swallow them up in the earth. And, and they go, okay. Now, I've prayed that from time to time. <laughs> Hadn't worked yet. <clears throat> but who knows? Be careful walking over the threshold into my office. Um, uh, you know, I'm always praying. I might separate. Paul continually had to defend his apostleship. Read 2 Corinthians, for instance, over and over and over again. The great apostle is having to defend himself to the people. No, I really am. Read the first chapter of Galatians. He's defending himself. He says, no, 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 this is where I got this calling. It's directly from God. And you see, we're naturally opposed to submitting to each other. But you see, that's the very heart of being a Christian. We submit all the time. It's evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Look in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 18. He writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, with all your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit are naturally bent to defer to the other. They're naturally bent in humility to love the other. And the reason is because when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, and those early Beatitudes, becomes a reality in our life. Remember what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. See, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us to convict us of our sin, we realize our own spiritual bankruptcy. We realize that we have absolutely, positively nothing with which we can commend ourselves to God. We see ourselves as we truly are. Sinners in the sight of God, hopeless and helpless without His mercy in our lives. And then the next beatitude is: blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over what? Well, when you see your spiritual bankruptcy, what you're seeing is your sin. And what takes place then because of the work of the Spirit in us is that we begin to mourn over our own sin and we see it for what it is and we realize that it requires God's justice against us and we plead with Him for mercy which He gives to us in Christ. So blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Comforted with what? Comforted with forgiveness because of the work of Christ. And what's the next one? Blessed are the meek now, who's the one who's meek? The one who's meek is the one who understands who he or she is in the presence of God, spiritually bankrupt, who need forgiveness. And see, once we've admitted that, once I admit to you that the best I can do on my own is hell, it's pretty hard for me to puff myself up to you. And so you see, Christians have this constant attitude. It's not that we have a low self-esteem. We have a proper self-esteem. We have a proper understanding of who we are. It isn't a low self-esteem to say, I'm a sinner in the sight of God without hope, except in His His sovereign mercy. It's not a low self-esteem that says, my just deserved is condemnation by God. That isn't a low self-esteem at all. That's just being reasonable. That's being right. Anything else is pride and arrogance. And so we have that in us. And once we know that, we realize... We're not all that. We realize that we can't puff ourselves up in front of other people. And so if you have an idea, why wouldn't I consider it? Why wouldn't I look to you for help? Why would I think I'm independent and self-sufficient? And so very naturally you see, supernaturally perhaps, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit are naturally those who... Differ, who submit, who love, who are humble in presence of other people. That's what it means, you see. And so then God says, I'm going to test that out in your life. I'm going to pick people in your life to lead you who are just like you. A friend of mine who's a pastor puts it like this. He says, you know, pastors are like cardiologists with high cholesterol. He says, the problem with us is that we have the same disease that everybody else has, except we're the ones trying to help them. That's really true, isn't it? And you see, leaders need to understand that, that we've all got the same disease. But in the mystery of God, he calls some to lead others. And others then to be obedient and to submit to them. And he says, if you do that, I'll bless you. It'll be of help to you. I'll let you help each other in that way, but you've got to follow my plan. You've got to follow that way. It's the same thing in families. Children, obey your parents. Wives, submit to your husbands. It's the same thing in society. Uh, To the degree that our culture does not cause us or or, or, or demand of us to sin against God were to be in submission to those in authority over us. God says, I'll do that for your own well-being. Structure life the way I have it structured. Organize yourself the way I've organized life in the context of the church, and it will be a blessing to you. So we find it difficult because of our pride. We also find it difficult because we know that not every leader really is from God. We know that because the scripture Tells us that, for instance, when Paul is speaking to this group of elders from Ephesus, that's recorded in Acts chapter twenty, he says it like this, and and this is a very um, passionate time that he shares with these elders because he knows, or he thinks at least, that this is the last time he'll ever see them, and and you get the sense that he um, loves them deeply. And so he's called them to be with him. Uh, And he's giving them sort of this last counsel. Verse 29 says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And we know that. We, We see the effects of bad leaders In Galatians, in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Which means that there were those who were preaching another gospel there. Leaders. And so we see the danger of just sort of blindly following. In in Jude, that little one chapter next to the last book in the New Testament, Jude puts it like this. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, we see the danger in following and it makes us reluctant to follow. All we have to do is turn on the TV and we see people, we'd be reluctant to follow, that don't ring true. Many of us have had experiences in churches and certain fellowships where it was clear after a while that those who leading were leading shouldn't be followed. And so we know the danger of that. But yet still this command to obey and submit. Now, I must say, if I could just do an advertisement on our church and churches like ours, that we understand that it's difficult to follow. And so there's a number of things put into place that we hope that will give you confidence in order to follow the leaders at Gray CPC. And other churches do this as well, to make it easy to follow them. Uh, first of all, to take very seriously the characteristics of leaders that we found find in First Corinthians, I'm sorry, in First Timothy chapter three. In Titus chapter 1, the character qualities of those who lead. We take that very seriously. You have a part in that. You have a part in, in nominating to us and giving your ideas of who you think are elders in the life of the church. We take that very seriously. When someone comes to the elders and says, we think this person is an elder, we take that very seriously. We set up special times for you to give us that information. Every so often we say, hey, write to us, uh, email us, Uh, here's a form to fill out to help us understand who you think might be elders uh, in the life of the church. Uh, we take the training of these people very seriously. Then we come to you and say, affirm them. as these, Are these really people that you could be willing to submit to and obey in the life of the church? Do, do, do you do that? Uh, we don't have just one elder. We have a whole group of elders. And everybody has sort of the same vote, if you will. There's not one who's more dominant over the other. We all share that leadership uh, together. We're a constitutional church, which means we abide by a particular constitution that our denomination has put together that's come down for hundreds of years on how to do church, and we submit to that. We're not making this up as we go along. We're a confessional church, which means our theological orientation is one that's tied to an historical document, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we say we're not going to deviate from this because this was good enough 500 years ago and it reflected what was in the scripture, and so we're going to stick to this, and if we deviate from it, you'll know it and you can shoot us. Uh, not literally um, so all of those who put into place we live our lives before you you know us we pray for you you call us and we answer we've been doing church a while and God still continues to prosper so we say trust us on the basis of that with the hope that it'll be good for your soul. Now, the reason that we need to uh, to, to uh, obey and submit to our leaders in such a way that their leading of us is joyful is because if it isn't joyful, then leaders get discouraged, as Calvin noted, and as my friend noted, who saw himself to be the lone tree in a world full of dogs. And the weariness and discouragement leads to a lack of effort. It leads to a giving up. I mean, parents know this. Parents know that it's easy to give up as a parent when the children you're leading don't want to be led. Uh, Teachers know this. It's easy to give up as a teacher when the students you're teaching don't want to be taught. Uh, Church leaders know this, that it's very difficult to lead when no one wants to be led. And it isn't, you see, uh, the difficulties that people go through, that we go through that cause leaders to become weary. Uh, It isn't the tragedies that we suffer that causes leaders to grow weary. Uh, It isn't even the sin that causes leaders to grow weary in the context of the life of the church. What causes leaders to grow weary is a stubborn willfulness not to yield to God. It's a lack of desire to repent. It's not all the things that you might think. People come to me all the time and say, I hate to share this with you because I know this will just be one more thing. And I go, no, 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 no. It's not a burden to me. It's not a burden for leaders in the church. When I call those who watch over my soul and I share with them the difficulties of my life, I don't do that thinking it's going to be a burden to them to hear this, because it isn't. In the same way, it's not a burden for a parent to hear the difficulty in their kid's life. It isn't a burden for a teacher to have a kid come in after after school and say, I don't understand this lesson. That's not the burden. The burden is when the kid doesn't come in. The burden is when you have to make the kid come in. The burden is when, even after you make the kid come in, the kid still doesn't care about learning that lesson. The burden for the parent is when you got to go get the kid. The burden for the parent is when the kid doesn't want to listen to you. The burden for the parent is when the kid just wants to wall you off and you get the feeling like you care more about their life than they care about it. And see, the burden for those in... Leadership in the context of the life of a community of people isn't all the things that you might think burden. What burden is when there's a lack of repentance. What burden... The burden is when, when there's a complaining over the attempts that are made to oversee the lives of your souls. Parents know this. You know that when you put yourself out for your kid, and you may not be doing a good job as a parent. I know that I didn't do that good of a job as a parent. I just keep praying my children don't remember. where um, I've promised to pay for half the counseling. Uh, but um, when you try and all you get is complaints. The teachers, when you try to teach and all you get is complaints. Uh, leaders in the church who try to lead the best they can, for lack of a better way of saying that, and their own sinfulness, and their own difficulties, and the fact that they have the same disease that everybody else has. Uh, and all of this gossip and complaining. I can honestly say that the thing that has made this church an easy church, or a joyful church to lead, is because of the minimal complaining and gossip and all that. But when it comes, it's painful. Because you really are doing the best you can. And it's a hard job. Because you see, leaders have been given two things by God. The first is a love for their flock. Now, Peter puts it like this as he talks about those who lead the church. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. This is first Peter chapter five, verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you. And you see, it's that little expression, not under compulsion, uh, means that you're doing it because you love them. There's no other reason to do this. There's no other reason to be a leader in the church. There's no other reason to be a parent of a child. Right? Than the fact that you love them. Because at least in those early days of parenting, early decades of parenting, you may not get much feedback, much affirmation. But you love them. It's, it's not under compulsion. It's not because you have to. It's not because the state is saying, you've got to take care of this kid. It's because you love them. And so the same thing that God gives to a parent for a child, he gives to leaders in the church to love the flock. And he says, not, shame, not for shameful gain, that is not for your own gain, but eagerly not domineering over those, those in, char, in, in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He said, that's, that's where this is. So he gives leaders a love. And then secondly, he gives them a charge. And that charge is to make an account to him for the souls of those over whom they're watching. And and there isn't ever a day, I don't think, at least for me, that leaders in the church don't think of Ezekiel chapter three, for instance. You'll have to turn to this taking too long probably. God says this to Ezekiel, son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whether you hear a word, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning for me if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give him no warning nor speak uh, to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn away from his wickedness or from his wickedness, wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity. But you will be delivered from your in your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you have not warned him. He shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood. I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you've delivered your soul. That's why when Paul met again with these elders from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he says this to them. Verse 26, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There isn't a leader in the church that doesn't read that passage and shrink and wonder, can I ever say that? And so you see, it's a very tenuous thing. But in the mystery of God, God, He's established the church in such a way that he said, I'm going to give you gifts. And these gifts will be leaders. And these leaders will lead you. Now understand, and this is such a funny thing. This is like meeting with a kid saying, be nice to your mom and dad. It's really hard to be a mom and dad. So, so you know, just cut them some slack. You know? Make it easy. Make it happy. Make it joyful for your mom and dad to be your mom and dad. I mean, I've said that to kids, and they look at me like I'm crazy. Um, I- I've said that to my own kids. Now, it's true for us as well, isn't it? He's saying this is the way God has set it up. This isn't easy for anybody. But it's especially difficult for them, for the leaders. Because they're the ones that have to make an account of God, to God, for your soul. So go along with them, generally speaking, respect them, love them, pray for them. Don't complain about them. Don't gossip about them. If you have a beef with them, go to them. That doesn't weary them. It doesn't weary them when you disagree. honestly. What wearies them is that when you disagree and complain to others and not to them. It's a hard thing, he says. But he says this, if you'll do that, then it'll be of great benefit for you because you'll have a group of people, you have a group of leaders who want to lead you, who want to continue on with you, who want to watch over your soul. And he's saying you need that now. Our confidence ultimately comes, as we know, from Christ. He is the chief shepherd, as the Apostle Peter puts it. He is, our, he is the great shepherd of the sheep, as the author of Hebrews puts it. He is our good shepherd. And in his good shepherdness, what he has done is that he has given his life for his sheep, and he's taken it back up again, which is a great thing. I mean, it's one thing to give your life for the sheep, and that's a great thing, isn't it? If you, if you were a sheep and a wolf attacked you, And your shepherd killed the wolf. And when he killed the wolf, he died. You'd go, oh, that's great. But then you'd realize you were shepherdless. The great thing about Jesus is that he killed the wolf with his own death and then rose. So now he's alive to continue to shepherd us. And so the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And we can remember all kinds of things about Jesus, obviously, but remember that he gave his life for his sheep. And he says, that's how much I care for you. And I've taken my life back up that I may continue to care for you. And amazingly, what he's saying to us here is, and I'm going to care for you by way of these leaders which I've given you. Love them as you would love me. When they're walking in my ways, submit to them. As you would submit to me and just as you would glorify me and make me Jesus be filled with joy and not grieved make their lives be filled with joy let's pray Father it's a humbling thing to be part of the body of Christ to know that the very God of the universe the very creator of all that is Became a man and dwelt among us and gave himself for us that we might live. He rose again to guarantee that our eternal destiny is safe and secure and all your promises will be fulfilled in us. And we know that he watches over us as our good shepherd. So I pray even now for us that we would receive. The care of the Lord Jesus in every way that He gives it to us. That we would receive His Spirit who lives in us to help us and guide us and lead us and transform us. That we would receive guidance and help and grace from Your Word that He provides to us by the apostles and the prophets through the scripture and that we would receive even by way of this table as this bread and juice is set apart in such a way that points us to Christ and we would receive at this table in such a way that our faith would increase and Father that we would receive from each other even those you've put in leadership over us and we would obey and submit in a way that makes their care for our souls a joy to them so that we can receive every benefit that you have for us in Christ Jesus. So, Father, now, even as we come to this table, I pray that we would know Jesus as our good shepherd and trust his way for caring for our souls. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight, without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who believe and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, that is freely as the Savior of sinners, as the one who's died for us. And all those who desire then to live as followers of Christ. And on this day, given the theme of our morning, all those who desire to be shepherded by the good shepherd and those he's appointed. And thus let me ask you to come these uh, two sections down this aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and know that Jesus is your good shepherd. Please come. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing.